Well, good morning, Door Creek. If you're a guest here today, hey, by the way, you guys, you're here at the first service. Yeah, I know, I know. It's really, yeah, 8.30. All right. Well, anyways, thanks for being here. Good on you to be here early. And uh, we, we, we're showing the hearty stock right here at the first service. Hey, if you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. Glad you're here. And I'm holding a bag sealed full of rice and beans and vitamins. Do you realize, you guys, 1,100 volunteers from Door Creek Church and from our partner schools, Mendota, Westside, and Windsor Elementary Schools, those kids and those families, along with Door Creekers, packed 90,000 meals this week. That is awesome. And those meals are going to the kids in Zaranje, this little village outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And we're going to be feeding those kids for a whole year. And there's lots more meals to feed other kids in Haiti. We partner with Mission of Hope. Get this, you guys. Every day they feed over 100,000 kids in Haiti. And it's our great joy to partner with Mission of Hope and out of the abundance of God's rich blessing in our lives, we love sharing that, right? And that's true for the people that live right here in our own backyard, all the way across the world to places like Rwanda and the little village of Zaranje, Haiti. So, hey, it's great to be together. And uh, I want to take you back to a day that was one of the saddest days of my life. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that call. The, the deep, gut-wrenching sorrow that just had enveloped my life as Lori and I, some 12 weeks before our wedding, realized that we needed to call it off. And like I was convinced this is the one for me. And we loved each other. And yet we knew we weren't at that place where we needed to be to get married. And that was so gut-wrenching to have that call separated by 300 miles. I was in Evanston. Lori was up in St. Paul. And yet it was clear that's what we needed to do. But it was the hardest thing to do. And we wept. And I remember hanging up and uh, going to bed just kind of feeling like this is just a bad, bad dream. In the middle of the night, Lori actually called back and said, maybe we're making a wrong decision here. Maybe we're making a mistake. Kind of gathered herself, said, no, I think this is the right thing to do. So the next morning, I woke up, and my future was radically changed. And because of that, I did something really strange. I went out that morning and bought a 10-speed bike. Now, by the way, this is the uh, same woman that I will be married to 39 years this September 26th. Because in God's good providence, I didn't just buy a 10-speed bike. I'm going to tell you about that. But six weeks later, we got back together. Six weeks later, two weeks after our initial date, we got married. No looking back. Praise God. But why did I buy a bike? Well, you could say, well, you're probably, you know, maybe you were just kind of getting into that kind of shoppers trying to get a little happiness in your life. 
yeah, that could have been. But I think what really happened was um, how I saw my future changed how I lived that day. I didn't have to save anymore for the honeymoon on South Padre Island. Like I had some extra cash. How we think about the future changes the way we live today. Oh, that's true all the time in life. We just don't always think about it. Like you're going through morning sickness. And uh, if, if you've gone through that just horrendous or, hey, if you've just gone through regular labor pains, you're going, it's worth it because in my future, this is what I see by God's grace, holding a child. It was that future that you had of, you know, becoming an actuarial that had you just grinding through all the study or, or, or seeing that master's degree or the, the BA or the BS, right, or becoming a doctor, becoming a nurse, a certified, you know, financial advisor, whatever it is. You go, I, I, I can see the end. And so it's changing how I, I'm just grinding through today, the three days in sports so we could be a starter, right? For some of us, we saw ourselves, you know, we're one day going to be sitting on the symphony's platform. I'm going to have one of those chairs. And so we spent hours and hours in the practice room because how we see the future changes how we live today. We spent hours in the art studio. We spent hours crossing out words, rewriting sentences. How we see the future, how we think about the future, changes the way we live today. Lori's dad got Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig's disease usually gets you about two years. During that two-year period, dad and mom visited us down in the western suburbs of Chicago where we lived. And I remember we were driving around outside of our town to this part of part of the western suburbs that was just filled with, I think you could call them mansions. It's just these beautiful estates. And I remember as we were driving by and there's some ooh and on going on by some of the kids and us. And all of a sudden, Dad quips from the back. Ah, these houses aren't anything compared to where I'm going. <laughs> His view of the future changed how he saw today. When we catch up with Paul in Philippians chapter 3, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Um, when we catch up with Paul, he's thinking about heaven. In verses 10 of chapter 3, in verses 14, in verse 20, he's talking about, he's talking about resurrection. He's talking about God's heavenward call. He's talking about having a citizenship, not here on this earth, not in Rome, but in heaven, he's thinking about heaven. He's drawing to the end of his life. He talked about that in chapter 2, how about his body is being poured out like an offering. It's the last thing that covers the offering, that drink, that libation. He said, it's just about over for me. He's thinking about the future. And he wants his friends to think about the future because they're in the middle of the story. And how they think about the future will help them navigate the story and not fall back but keep moving ahead because his desire, his goal is to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ, and one day to see him face to face. And he wants to meet his brothers and sisters there. And he wants them and us to be clear about this, how we think about the future radically changes the way we live today. 
So in verses 12 through 14, he's going to say this. When we live with the end in view, we know who we are. He's going to talk about humility and where we're going. He's going to talk about focus. So look at verse 12, chapter 3. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. The Christian life, he says, is about maturity, maturing, not about attaining perfection. He's talking about his sole aspiration to be found, to know, to gain Christ. But he, he wants them to realize that, hey, I, I, I haven't arrived, right? I, I haven't obtained this yet. I, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't taken hold of all that God has for me. He sees himself for who he is by God's grace. Now, this is the guy that just before, in chapter 3, when he was talking about his life before Christ, said, man, I was so confident in my own religious pilgrimage and journey and accomplishments. So he would say things like, I was faultless. That sounds like the language of perfection. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee par excellence. Like I was persecuting anybody opposed to Judaism. Not now. Grace changed his life, changed his understanding of who he fundamentally is. Stay humble. Stay focused, though, he says. How so? Forget what's behind. And this is something that when you look at the way the word is structured, this is something that we have to do ourselves. Like, I can't help you forget your past. You've got to forget the past. But Christ makes that possible. Because there's nothing in our past that we're chained to right now. Paul was chained to successes, religious successes. When he talks about forgetting what is behind in the context of chapter 3, it has to be all the things that he thought were kind of gaining him credit in God's eyes. All this do-gooding religious activity. So when you think about the past that can keep us from going forward in this world, it's actually thinking that I'm such a good person and we look at all of our successes, whether it's religious successes or whether it's professional successes, or whatever category of success is important to you, he says, if we are going to move forward, and if we're going to cross the goal of the finish line and win the prize, then we got to forget what's behind. Now, most of us don't get stuck thinking about our past successes, right? Most of us get stuck and chained to the past because we're thinking about other things like that betrayal, like that loss of a loved one. We're thinking about things that we've done that just bring this overwhelming sense of guilt. Usually those are the things that hold us back 
And so he's basically saying, you guys, we can't run this race with our head looking back. When we're chained to the past, we are not moving forward. So there's a great illustration about this from the life of Roger Bannister and John Landy. So Roger Bannister, the great British runner, was the first man to break the four-minute mile. He did so in May of 1954. In June of 1954, an Australian man, John Landy, broke his record by 1.4 seconds. And so it was the biggest deal when those two runners got together in the British Commonwealth Games in British Van uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, in August of that same year. They called it the Dream Mile, the Miracle Mile, the Race of the Century. A hundred million people were listening on the radio and millions more watching on TV. And so here's the race in just short summary. Landy's ahead, going into the final turn on the final lap. And he doesn't know where Bannister is. And so he wants to sneak a peek to find out where he is. And he looks left. Look at it here, right here in the slide. That's that moment in the race. He's looking for Bannister on his left, only to find out that he's breezing by him on his right and edges him out at the tape. Paul's saying, you can't win the race. You won't cross the the goal. You won't win the prize if you're chained to your past, if you're stuck looking back. And there isn't anything in our past that Christ and his death on the cross can't free us from. The successes? And remember, there's no arrogance at the foot of the cross. And our failures. At the cross, we find forgiveness that allows us to forgive and be freed from the bitterness of someone who's wronged us, freed from the guilt that's weighing us down. There isn't anything in your past that Jesus Christ hasn't dealt with on the cross. Paul says, focus, focus. You want to stay focused? Keep straining ahead. Run for the prize. Eyes on the prize, not on the past. Now, this isn't in the text, but here's another way to think about it. Um, we are running for the prize, not for the crowd. Sometimes we're not stuck in the past, but man, we are so, we're so aware of our surroundings and we're, we're moving and looking here instead of there. So there's this classic race. Let me show you a short clip of this runner from Oregon. Let's check out what happens to him. My word for it, there's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can. And you know, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. He'll never make that mistake again. He was running for the crowd. Hey, guys! Look at me, man. I'm like 10 yards. Whoa, what just happened? <laughs> Run for the prize, not for the past. Run for the prize, not for the crowd. And he keeps leaning into this 
metaphor of a runner, of this athlete. And he says, straining. I'm straining with everything that I have like a runner. Here's this great picture of Usain Bolt crossing the finish line. And this is what great sprinters do, right? At the tape, they're all doing this. They're all leaning everything they can in. And that's the image Paul has. I'm leaning in to the goal of finishing well. I'm leaning into the prize. He didn't say what the prize is, but it's clear. It's Christ. It's his well done. It's the crown of righteousness, his work completed in his life. It's exchanging the eyes of sight for the eyes of faith to be in his presence and find out that Jesus is beautiful and perfect and sufficient and enough to spend eternity with and never get bored. Kidding me. Never go like, what else is there anyways to do up here? Because, man, I hear we're going to be up here a long time. <laughs> to just go, I can't believe it. I'm seeing Christ. By his grace, I've won the prize. When we begin with the end in view, there's clarity about who we are. It's clear about where we're going, right? We're going ahead by God's grace to the finish line. And then he goes and he turns, almost picking up on this whole thing of the crowd, and he says, and so as you find yourself in the race, make sure you're running with the right people. Make sure you're following the right examples. So here it is in the verses to come. In verse 17, we read this. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Paul's saying when we live with the end in view, we know who to follow. We know who to follow. And he's giving us two opportunities here, two choices. You can follow me, Paul says. Remember what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. The reason he can say you can follow me is because he's following Christ. Follow my example. Why? As I follow the example of Christ. He's talked about his example, he's talked about the example of others that we're to honor, like Timothy and Epaphrodites in chapter 2, 19 through 30. And now he's saying, look, you have two choices. You can follow my example and others like me, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Lydia, whose home the church is meeting in, other godly women and men. Or you can follow people who he describes as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so we need to be clear that who we're running with, who we're following, has everything to do with how we're going to finish and break the tape. Eyes on the prize. Or, as he says, their end is destruction. So he gives four descriptions of these people who he calls enemies of the cross. Now, why didn't he just say enemies of Christ? Why does he say enemies of the cross of Christ? Because the cross is at the heart of our faith. It's at the heart of what Christ came to do. His death on the cross in our place for our sin. 
Now, if you're an enemy of the cross, it could be because like the people that he's just been talking about in chapter 3, who he called these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, he's talking about false teachers who are saying to the church, great that you've got Jesus. We're good with Jesus too, but you just need to know Jesus ain't enough. You need Jesus plus keeping the law. And the law was summarized in the symbol of the law and being a law law keeper in the community of faith, and that was circumcision. So Jesus is great, but don't think anything's free, you guys. Come on. There's no such thing as true grace where we have this undeserved merited gift from God. You gotta show up. See, they're the people who would say of 2.12, you're to work for your salvation. Paul said, you work out your salvation. See, you become an enemy of the cross when you say the cross of Christ isn't enough. You become an enemy of the cross when you say, well, because we're forgiven and Jesus has done it all, man, we can just live how we want to live. Isn't that great? We're like free. There's license. We can be an enemy of the cross if we say, like Paul did, I'm faultless. I'm a good guy. I'm living a morally pure life. I don't need the cross. I don't need God's forgiveness. Jesus, you didn't have to die. I can be my own savior. Jesus says in Luke 19, verse 27, that his enemies are people who don't recognize him as king, as Lord, as God. So he says, you can follow me and those like me. What was Paul about? Well, he opens the letter saying, I'm a servant of Christ. What was he about? Man, you guys, I am so worn out at the end of my life. I've been through so much. I am so ready to go to heaven. But for your sake and your progress and joy, I am willing and I find it is important and necessary to stay so I can serve you guys. I've got the mindset of Christ. I'm not here to act out a selfish ambition and vain conceit like some of these other leaders he points out. No, I'm here to humbly serve like Jesus who gave up his life that we might live. You follow my example. Anybody else who lives like Christ? Or you just need to know there's other people and they might even be in the church, he says, who are enemies of Christ. There's four things he says about them. You'd see it. Verse 19, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. Four characteristics of the enemy of Christ and the cross. First, he just says, just so we're clear here, if you're following them, they're going to take you right off the cliff. You think this is a good thing? You think this is a good path? You think this might be a shortcut to better things in your life? This thing is going off the edge of a cliff. Their end is destruction. And how does he communicate this message? Did you see? He's communicating it through tears. There there is no joy in the godly woman or man about the ruin 
of another. There is no joy in heaven. The joy in heaven is over those who repent and find life in Christ. God's desire is that no one should perish. And that's why he sent his son into this world. Their end is destruction. It's clear. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? They worship themselves. They're all about their appetite and their passions. Jesus offers fullness and abundance. They have indulgence that covers a deep emptiness. He says, you can know. You can know about these people. Not just because of what they say, but because how they live their lives. I'm telling you, it all goes bad in the end. But here's how you can know it goes bad in the end. They are living for themselves. That selfish ambition, vain conceit that he talked about in others is the same kind of dynamic going on here. But it's this hedonistic, just pleasure-seeking indulgence. Indulgence. More, more, more. Not the fruit of the Spirit that is marked by self-control faithfulness not only is their god their belly but they boast and are proud about the very things they should be ashamed of so the lines between right and wrong are completely blurred in fact they might be just flat out inverted the things that they should be ashamed of that they should not even want to whisper in public are the things they trumpet from the open square proud of those things about their freedom to express their lives in any way they want. And he says at the end of the day, they're nearsighted spiritually and their worldview has shrunk. So as they look out to the future, all they see is a period. All they see is the horizon of this world. What do I mean by a period? When they look to their life and the end of their life, if our life is compared to a sentence, at the end of our life, there's a period. The Bible says the end of our life is a comma. It keeps on going. That death actually is the doorway into our eternal existence. To those who know Christ and love him, into heaven. To those who don't, into eternal separation from God. God says, you don't want to live with me here in this world? I'm going to let you do that forever. They think it's a period. The Bible says it's a comma. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul uses this metaphor of the race a lot. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth, to hinder you, to prevent you is the idea there. You guys were running a good race. You weren't looking that way. You weren't looking there. Your eyes were on the prize. You were following me, he says to the church at Galatia. And then all of a sudden, you took a right turn. And you know what the right turn was in Galatians? It was the Judaizers. It was the Jesus plus gospel people. Like, Jesus is great. He's just not enough, guys. And you gotta muster up a life of good works to gain your salvation. Who cut in on you? People who told them that the gospel was not good news in and of itself. It was insufficient. So I think what Jesus is, what Paul is doing here is picking up on Jesus' warning when he talks about the false teachers. And he says, look, 
you might be confused about the message, but you just keep inspecting the fruit because by their fruit, you will know them. What's he saying? He's not saying get into their house and check out their fruit bowl. He's using it as a metaphor. What's growing out? What's flowering from this person's life? If there is compromise at the level of truth and the truth of the gospel, it'll show up in the compromise of character. And he's saying the character will be marked with indulgence and hedonism and pleasure-seeking, and they'll wrap it in, the false teachers will, this is what God wants for us. You should be happy, and you can have this too. Beware. Beware. Their end is destruction. Their belly is their God. They boast and are proud of the very things they should be ashamed of, and they're living for this world. So Paul says, not us, look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, let me, one caveat. I just saw that in my notes. One caveat on the, uh, the people in our lives. He doesn't say exactly who the enemies are, right? In the context, there's false teachers. The fact is, enemies of Christ and the cross of Christ could exist within the church, outside of the church. So here's a caveat. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Jesus was called a drunk and a glutton because he hung out with people like Matthew and his friends, and they had parties. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jesus plus kinds of people, cried foul. Jesus is not saying here, Paul is not saying here, the word of God is not saying here, don't love those people. We're to love those people. We're to point them to Jesus. The, the teaching here is don't follow those people. Don't let them point you into saying, this is the way you ought to live your life. Come on, come on. We're going this way. Love them. Back to Jesus. The one that they're ultimately seeking for. The one who died for them. All right, now about this whole thing of citizenship. Now, the, the people in Philippi were part of a Roman colony, which meant they had the privileges of Roman citizenship. Like, that's a big deal. There were privileges to being a citizen, along with some responsibilities. But there are a lot of privileges. And in that day, to be a Roman citizen was a plus. And he didn't say squat about their Roman citizenship. He wanted to say, those people that are enemies of the cross of Christ are holding the wrong passport. You have another passport. Your passport is a heavenly passport. Your citizenship is not here bound to this earth. Your citizenship is in heaven. And how you see the future will change how you live today. And you're to live as a citizen of heaven today in the middle of the story, in this broken, twisted, fallen world. Not as a citizen of the earth. So, citizenship is something that God is inviting us into. Chapter 3, verse 14, his heavenward call. 
Come into relationship with me. Come into my kingdom. Be a citizen in my kingdom. The other metaphor, be a, a son or daughter in my family. Be a part of my body. These are all metaphors. Citizens in heaven eagerly anticipate his return. How do we know we're citizens of heaven? Well, one of the things is there's this eager sense of anticipate. We can't wait to see Christ. He's going to tell us why. Now, I've been traveling in and out of international airports for most of my life, but recently a lot on my trip to Africa. And one of the things that happens is you're coming out of clearing customs. You walk into this public gallery, and you've been there, a lot of us. And there's a crowd there waiting for the people who are arriving in that country. And there's three kinds of people. You ready? There's the guys that are holding a piece of paper. Who are them? Yeah, they're drivers, right? They're limo drivers. And that's some kind of awaiting. It's not necessarily an eager thing. Maybe once in a while you see him kind of going, are you this guy? Are you this guy? Then there's, a, there's another group that's waiting, and they're kind of like the business associates. And so they might kind of casually know each other, and that's one kind of waiting. But then there's the waiting of family. Then there's the waiting of lovers. And when you see that group comes together, when you see that group waiting and they're craning their necks and the little kids are bouncing and somebody's got a bouquet of flowers, you know that's eager anticipation for their guest. That's what he's getting at. Eagerly anticipating Christ's return. Why? Because when he returns through his power, he's going to bring everything under its control. What does that mean? This world started as a perfect place, a beautiful place that was meant to last forever, a place where we could know God, enjoy God, live with God, have perfect harmony with each other, have perfect harmony in his world. And everything has been twisted and changed since Adam and Eve and we with them rebelled against God. And he's coming to make all things right. When he came and he started doing miracles, he was giving us little signs of what he's going to be all about when he comes back and brings in the fullness of his kingdom and his perfect justice and his perfect righteousness established in this world. So get this, you guys. There will no be no more virus reports, no more quarantine, be no more rape. There'll be no more slandering. There'll no, be no more dirty politicians. There'll be no more murder. There'll be no more poverty. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more death. Anything that we're opening up and scanning on our phones that goes, ah, ah, ah. No more tornadoes that wipe out a neighborhood and a city. It'll all be perfect. And then he says, he's going to transform our bodies so that we're going to be perfect too. And that's why we eagerly await. He's going to transform what? These lowly bodies into a glorious body that is like Jesus. So can we just review something that I think Christians get confused upon? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that means when we die and our body is buried in the ground, 
We keep on living because there's an eternal dimension of our lives. And we are in the presence of Christ if we placed our faith in him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When he talked to the thief in the cross that cried out for mercy from Christ, he said to the thief in the cross, when I come back in how many years, then we'll be together, dude, up in heaven. That's not what he said. He said, today, this very day, you will be with me in heaven. Now we know Jesus' body was taken off the cross on Friday afternoon by Joseph of Arimathea. And he and Nicodemus buried him in Joseph's tomb, wrapped his body. His body that day was in the tomb, but he said, thief on the cross, we're getting together in heaven today. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we think, and we'll say things like, hey, I know this is so great. Mom, dad, whoever, you know, they were confined like my dad was to a wheelchair. And now they're running with Jesus. And I think when we say that, we're, let, we're, we're actually thinking they got their new body. So let me take another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 57. Paul says, when Christ returns, a trumpet will sound. And then he says, the dead in Christ will be raised. And we're going, well, wait a minute. I thought to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What is he talking about? He's talking about our bodies. We'll be raised. And those who are still alive will meet Christ in the air. And it says we must be changed. What must be changed? Our bodies. Because these bodies aren't suited for eternity. These bodies are marked by the curse. So he says there's got to be a swap. The, the perishable, our body, needs to put on the imperishable. The mortal, our bodies, that die and decay, need to take on immortality. This lowly thing, Paul says, is going to take on the glorious new body that's like Christ. I don't know everything about that new body. But I know some things about Jesus' body that you could recognize Jesus' body because he showed him his hands and his feet, right? We'll see that. Guys, we're going to see that. The only man-made thing in heaven, his hands and his feet, wounded for us. But at the same time, I know that when he just showed up on that Sunday night in the upper room, he didn't use the door. Like he just busted through. The, he didn't even bust through the wall. He just kind of went through the wall. That's, that's not like my body or your body. The lowly body. Hey, young people, one day it is going to be a lowly body. And it goes a lot faster than you think. Take care of it as stewards. It's going to be a glorious body. So why do we eagerly anticipate? Because he's going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new. And he's going to make us new, fitted for eternity. Jesus taught on hell. We don't like to hear the teaching on hell. I don't like to talk about hell. Paul cried about it. But Jesus taught about it. A clear thinking about the future is a clear understanding that there's Two ways to live our lives that lead to two different places eternally. Jesus taught on hell, but Jesus experienced hell. And separation from God as he took on all the sin of this world, that we could be freed from it. And he's offering, he's calling us home, heavenward. So Paul says there's some people out there that have the, they're holding the wrong passport. 
So I was thinking about citizenship. I was thinking about, maybe you guys don't know this, but you know about, you know, because I do talk about Switzerland every now and then. Um, but you might not know that I'm actually a dual citizen. So I have, it's outdated now, expired, but at one point in my life, I had a Swiss passport. So um, obviously I got a U.S. passport. I was born in Evanston, Illinois. My parents had naturalized at that point. They were citizens. But how do you get this passport? Because I wasn't born in Switzerland. I'm registered there in this little town called Baleg. You'll see it there in the registration, Baleg Lignerol. These two little villages nestled along the Swiss-French border. That's where I'm registered. And I'm a Swiss citizen because of bloodline, because of blood. We are citizens in heaven, not because we've amassed this resume that Paul's been talking about, but because of the blood. What blood? Jesus' blood, his life. So here's the funny thing. So we're going to go to Switzerland for a six-month sabbatical. College Church is very generous. And uh, we're going to live in my dad's little village. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a Swiss passport because I can. So I got a Swiss passport. I paid the money. And I filled out all the paperwork. And you know what happened? I never once used my passport. <laughs> never once. And Paul's asking us, as he asked the church, check your passport. Which one are you holding? Where are you going? This way, that way. Who are you going with? Do you know the end of the story? Are you living for the end of the story? If you're not excited for his return, if you're not excited to meet him, you're holding the wrong passport. And if you're holding that passport, and you know you have that passport because you've placed your faith in Christ, he said, live like a citizen. Humility, humble service, eyes on the prize. Live like a citizen. Run with people like Paul and those who love Christ. Run, live like a citizen who are eagerly anticipating Christ's return. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, how it's teaching us, how it's calling us short, how it's getting us back online, and how it's training us to live rightly in this world before you and others, that we might be about the things that you're about, doing good in this world, until that day when you make this world perfect again, completely under your control. Grant faith, Lord, to those who are hearing your heavenward call to come home. Grant faith that you are the only way, the truth, and the life. Grant great courage for us, Lord, as we find the things of our past have great power in our lives. Lord, may we truly understand and by your grace take the power of the cross and be freed from all this stuff that's holding us back. Free us today from that and help us, Lord, to live as citizens who know where we're going and understand the end of the story. By your grace, for your glory, we pray. Amen.